Good morning. My name is Mike Griffin. I'm one of the elders here at Christ Community Church. And today's scripture reading is in Proverbs 22, 6, 23, 24 through 25. And if you want to open up your Bible to Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. So you'll have that ready to look at. And that is page 544 in the blue Bible under your seat. If you'll join me in standing and reading God's Word. Proverbs 22 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. And turning over to Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Please take a moment and meditate on God's word. Good morning. We're going to be kind of like we've been doing in the series in Proverbs, just jumping around the book of Proverbs, but if you keep, you know, one finger right there in 22 and 23, and then maybe you put a bookmark or your hand or your foot or whatever right there in Ephesians 6, you'll get a good idea of where we're starting and where we're, we're ending up. You know, the, the question that we're trying to ask as we go through the book of Proverbs uh, in this series is, is we're trying to ask, how do we live wisely in God's world, you know the the, the image that, that we've we've had is this image of um, like a carpenter, like a skilled woodworker. That the idea that the way God has designed the universe, it has a grain to it. It has a direction uh, where if you go along the grain, if you cut with the grain, you can do some pretty beautiful things. And it's and it's a lot easier <laughs> most of the time to go with the grain of creation. And if you go against the grain, well, you, you get splinters and you run into trouble. Um, and so the question we're trying to ask this morning is, uh, as we think about this idea of living and walking wisely, which means in the book of Proverbs, just living in the fear of the Lord. How do we apply that to living with our families? The question we're asking is, how do we live with wisdom with the people that are closest to us, the people in our families? And, Wisdom, in the book of Proverbs, wisdom in the Bible, is the path God's people must take if they want to make a practice of living well, living justly, living righteously, living mercifully in God's world. And so we kind of have a little bit of an idea of what wisdom is, right? Because we've been talking about it for a couple weeks. Uh, But what's a family in the Bible? Now, sometimes we have this concept of family that it's just, you know, the nuclear family or the biological family, mom, dad, 2.5 kids, maybe a golden retriever or something and a Boston whaler. Um, and, 
But it's not just that. Uh, in the Bible, the family is this multi-generational concept. Uh, family is about a close relationship of community. Family in the Bible, family is your people. Family is where you're known and loved and where you belong. Uh, it's, a, it's the closest quarters community of human relationship. Uh, often in the Bible, they're united by blood, but also maybe it's through a legal action, through adoption or, or marriage or remarriage or something like that. I mean, you see that all over the Bible, that it's kind of this, this really important concept, but it's not necessarily a narrow concept. But also in the Bible, and this is really important for us, especially if you're thinking when you saw the topic of this sermon, you're like, well, I'm not married. I don't have kids, or my kids are way out of the house. This doesn't have anything to do with me. Really, what you have to understand is when the Bible talks about family, it's talking about the fundamental building block of all of human society. So that pretty much everything, every set of relationships in human society kind of boots off the grid of family. For kids in the room, maybe you'll appreciate this. I appreciate this analogy because I have a five-year-old boy who has a trunk full of Legos under his bed. But the family is like the single Lego block of human community. Follow me here. Because anytime you build anything with Legos, it basically looks like a Lego. It's kind of square, it's kind of colorful, it's kind of angular, and it's always bumpy on the top. It doesn't matter what you make. You make a Lego Millennium Falcon, it's still going to be kind of bumpy on the top, and it's going to be angular and square. Every community resembles a family in some way the same dynamics are at work whether it's at work uh in your workplace in your workplace uh whether it's uh in the government uh, whether it's just in your household whether it's your relationship with your roommates college students these same dynamics are in operation because the family is the lego block of human community There are so many messages in our culture about how families are supposed to operate. And really, we see some pretty bad models out there, not just in the world, but also in the Bible. I mean, most of the Old Testament is just a record of how to do family badly. So we really have to listen carefully to to what God's word says we ought to do when we relate to those in our families and take our cues from this. Otherwise, we're going to end up being a fool. Now, you could take, for instance, uh, George Banks from the movie uh, Mary Poppins. Now, again, if you don't have preschool children around like I do, uh, you haven't watched Mary Poppins, I don't know, 50 times in the last three months. But just let me refresh your memory. So George Banks works in a really important bank in London, so he's a really important guy. And he works hard all day, and he lives this strict, kind of regimented, disciplined life. So when he comes home... He wants his home to work just like his bank. He wants it to be neat. He wants it to be tidy. He wants it to be orderly. And this is his ideal day. If you ever want to know what's going on in the heart of a character in a Disney movie, by the way, just listen to whatever song they sing in the very beginning of the movie. It's called the Wish Song, and it just lets you know exactly. Like some songs are just like, I've got a dream. This is what my dream is. I want to have legs if you're the Little Mermaid. But for George Banks, this is his This is his dream. He comes home, and this is what he sings. He says, I run my home precisely on schedule. At 6.01, I march through the door, and guess what? My slippers, sherry, and pipe are due at 6.02. Consistent is the life I lead. I'm the lord of my castle. I'm the sovereign. I'm the liege. I treat my subjects 
I don't know how you like that, but I treat my subjects, servants, children, wife, with a firm but gentle hand, noblesse oblige. It's 6.03, and the heirs to my dominion are scrubbed and tubbed, and they're adequately fed, so I just pat them on the head, and I send them off to bed. Ah, lordly is the life I lead. Do you get that? He spent a minute with his kids before they went to bed. (laughs) So Banks, Mr. Banks, sees himself at the center of his universe. His wife and his children, they exist, according to this song, to serve him, to bring him joy, to make life work for him. He works hard out there in the world at the bank. So when he gets home, if his wife needs a husband or his children need a father or his neighbors need a friend, well, it's just too bad because he's the lord of his castle. He's got a sherry in his pipe and his slippers. So the moral of the story in Mary Poppins, this is what George Banks learns, is is that your family isn't the place where you just sit back and put your feet up. Family... Is supposed to be the place where the most important and formative moments in life happen. And in that setting, parents, listen to me, your kids need you to show up and love them and instruct them and care for them. But we recognize the impulse of Mr. Banks, don't we? Because left to ourselves, we'll fall into the exact same trap. We make it it's so easy for us to think that the other members of our family, the other people in close relationships to us, our roommates, our coworkers, our closest friends, exist to serve us, to make our life peaceful. And so it's crucial that we hear from Scripture this morning about the way God created our family to be. And so I just want to look at it kind of from three directions, three headings. First, we're going to see the power of the family in Proverbs Next, we're going to talk about the paths of wisdom in the family. And then third, we're going to talk about the myth of the perfect family. So first, the power of family. In Proverbs, you see this incredible power that the closest relationships have in your life to either bring blessing or cursing to your life. The reality is, for us who are in families, kids, parents, I mean, parents, you know this is true. For better or for worse, a lot of your happiness is bound up in the happiness of your children. I mean, it's just the reality. There's a, a quote um, Tim Keller likes to say that one of his uh, uh, congregants said, which is, hey, as a mother, you're, you're only as happy as your most unhappy child. God, there's a lot of truth in that. And so the truth is, is that there's this power, almost this, we'll call it a covenantal relationship where depending on the quality of the relationship, either blessing or curse is brought into your life. Listen to this, Proverbs 23, 24. We read it. The father of the righteous, righteous child, you'll greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Listen to this, Proverbs 10, 1. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Listen to this, the fifth commandment. This is about um, your kids' relationships to your parents and the blessing and cursing dynamic there. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God has given to you. There's this covenant power to bring blessing into your life or cursing or splinters in your life, depending on how you go along the grain of family. It's extremely important. Listen to this, spouses. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. 
he obtains favor from the Lord. Oh, his life is blessed. An excellent wife, who can find? She's more precious than jewels. Oh, it's so beautiful. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Second half of Proverbs 12, 4. She who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Oh, listen to this about fighting with your spouse. It's better to live in the corner of a housetop. It's better to live in a desert. It's better to live under a dripping faucet than with a quarrelsome wife. That's what it says in the book of Proverbs. So if there's... When you look throughout the book, you see that your family relationships have this disproportionate power to shape your life. The quality of these relationships really determines the quality of of everything else in your life. So, kids, think about this. Just be merciful to your parents because their lives are bound up with yours. And know that, that, that they think about how you feel. And your words carry a disproportionate amount of weight. Your, your tone of voice carries a disproportionate amount of weight with them. Kid, parents, same goes with you. The way you look at your kids, the way you speak to your kids, it has incredible power. You have incredible influence in their lives. Power to either being blessing or cursing. We know this. Mothers, women, wives, daughters, sisters... This is profoundly true. And I think what those verses about quarreling make clear is that you, as a woman, God has given you the ability to set the emotional temperature in your house in a way that is uncommon. You can either make your house a warm and welcoming place or you can make it a cold and forbidding place, depending on the temperature that you set. And so there's this this influence that you have over your entire household. And what I'm saying is the book of Proverbs is saying just just be aware of its power. Be aware of its importance. Give these relationships a priority. Dads, it really doesn't matter if you're a hero to everyone else out there at your job. To your buddies. If you're not making a priority of your life at home, if you're not a hero to your kids, your your life is is foolish. Um, But if your life is sweet at home, it doesn't matter what happens anywhere because your your whole life will be sweet. Um, So we see that, that there's this incredible priority to family life in the Bible. We know it's important. We want to make it a priority. So how do we live wisely with our family? Well, what we have to do is is the second thing is we need to learn to walk on the paths of wisdom in our family. Now, before we look at the kind of different roles and different habits in the family, I just we want to mention a couple things that are particular to the way the Bible talks in the wisdom literature. First, we've said this before, but the Bible doesn't give us promises in the wisdom literature, but it does give us probabilities. It tells us the way to live that normally leads to blessing and fruitfulness and the ways to live to avoid that normally leads to cursing and pain. Um, 
these verses that we're going to read in the book of Proverbs aren't promises that if you just do X, Y, and Z, you can avoid all suffering in your life and you just kind of force the hand of God's providence to only bring you the outcomes you want for the rest of your life, for your marriage, for your work, and your children. That's not the way it works. Basically, what God is trying to do, he's trying to set you down on a path. Because wisdom is not a door. Wisdom is a path. Let me explain. Some of us can tend to think of wisdom as a door, meaning you've got a set of two doors. Bad choice, good choice. I make the good choice, and then I walk in, and I find blessing. And that's it. It's the one choice I make. And then I'm wise, my life is good, my life is blessed, I'm a righteous person. That kind of view of the wisdom literature tends to make you treat the Christian life as a series of techniques. Here's the technique for being a good parent. Here's the technique for being a good husband. People sell a lot of books on these things. So if you ever read a book that says, here's the one thing you have to do to be a good parent, just run from it. Because there is no one thing that you have to do. Well, except love God, fear him, and keep his commandments. But what you do is it's a series of choices. Wisdom is not a door. It's a path. It's a series of decisions you make that form habits in your life that takes you down a road that over the accumulation of all the experiences in your life leads to blessing, leads to wisdom, leads to joy, leads to fruitfulness. So wisdom isn't a door. Wisdom is a path. And finally, wisdom is situational, meaning wisdom is about living in the fear of the Lord not disconnected from places and people, but it's about living in the fear of the Lord as a human being with the roles and the abilities and the relationships that God has placed you with. So wisdom, it is, um, it's highly situational. So how you're supposed to respond, we'll see, largely depends on where you are in relationship with other people. If you're a parent, if you're a spouse, if you're an employer or an employee, there's a different posture that you have to take in order to be wise, and we're going to look at those. First, let's look at the path of wisdom for, for spouses. This is for the, the adults in the household. So in contrast to this idea of the, the quarrelsome spouse that we talked about, where the husband and wife are just kind of pitted against each other, right? And it's like rottenness in the bones. In Proverbs... We see a husband and wife relationship described as living in unity, living in partnership, being on the same team. This is what one commentator said. He said, husband and wife equally share in the children's training, and they're assumed in the book to speak with one voice. Husbands and wives are, are called close friends. They're called comrades. They're called companions. In Proverbs 2.17, when it says the adulterous woman, she, what she's doing is she's forsaken the close companion of her youth. She's forsaken this person who's her dearest friend, who's supposed to be her comrade, who's supposed to be her partner, her compatriot. I just love those words. Really, this, and this is what I often say in marriage counseling with people and with college students, if you want to find a spouse, what you want to look for is less just someone that you, you're going to fall madly in love with for the rest of your life and more like someone you want to run a business with for the rest of your life. Do you trust them? Can you partner with them? Can you pull in the same direction? 
That's what it looks like to be a, a partnership uh, as uh, spouses in the book of Proverbs. And the main way we kind of build up that unity, that being on the same team, the way you do it is through encouraging one another. So how does this look? Proverbs 31, if you want to flip to it, the very end of the book, you've got this supreme example of not just a wife. It's kind of the climax of the whole book. This wonderful, wise woman. She's strong. She's blessed. And how do her kids, how does her husband treat her? Look at this. Verse 28, her children rise up and they call her blessed. I wonder how they learned to talk to their mother. I wonder who modeled it for them. Oh, here it is. Her husband also. He praises her. This is what he says. Many women have done excellently, but you, you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is in vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands. Let her, the works, let her works praise her in the gates. Her family's praising her. Her husband is lavishing encouragement upon her. <laughs> The key word here in this section, it's used three times, is praise. So the home, the wise home where husband and wife are fearing the Lord is a place of praise. Not just the praise of God, it turns out, but the praise of godly people. Husband and wife are doing what Ephesians 4 calls speaking the truth in love to one another. Being wise to one another means practicing benediction. It's this old word, which basically just means giving good words to one another. Anne Voskamp, who's this writer, this is what she says. Only speak words that make souls stronger. Let, just, let, let that be your rule, okay? Only speak words that make souls stronger. Let your words build up. Beware of words that tear down. The application for husbands here is, I think... You cannot withhold beneficial speech from your spouse. There's kind of a generational thing sometimes where it's cool to be the John Wayne and just be silent and assume that people, you know, know what you mean. But people will wither under that kind of relationship. And it can tend towards being neglectful. And so what you want to do is you want to lavish praise where it's due. You want to look for opportunities to encourage one another, husband and wife. And what I would encourage is just make this a practice. Uh, find something to praise in your spouse. Just say today, before the end of the day, whoever you came here with, find something to praise in them before the end of the day. Just make it a practice. Maybe you, you do it at Sunday lunch every week. Maybe you do it at the dinner table. Maybe you do it at breakfast. Um, this works with your coworkers as well. I mean, one of the greatest things for me uh, when Liz Carpenter and I were on Young Life staff with John Gale, who used to go here, is we'd go out to dinner or we'd go out to lunch for the birthday of whoever, uh, whoever was on staff when it was their birthday. And then we'd go around the table and kind of go around the horn and you'd say, this is what, how I've seen Christ in you. This is the way I see God in you. It's profoundly encouraging. And I just say, don't wait for a birthday. Don't wait for a funeral when everyone usually spends time talking about how much people mean to them. Do it right now. Do it today. Don't let the day go by without sharing your love and your admiration and your appreciation with the people closest to you. 
That's for spouses. Now, what, what, what if we're kids? What if we're children? So just parents, you can tune out for a second. Not really. But um, kids, listen. I want you to know I've got great news for you. This, this is really good news, okay? You know that feeling you have sometimes where you go to school, you get out in the world, and, and you have friendships, and, and it feels like things are kind of complicated. And as you get older, they get more complicated, and it can be kind of scary. And maybe you don't want to admit it, you probably don't want to admit it to your parents, but sometimes you get tired of just feeling awkward. You get tired of not knowing what to do. You get tired of not knowing what to say. And you feel like, this is too much for me. I've got good news. It is too much for you. The world is too complex. It's too difficult. And God didn't create you to know it all, to be able to do it all. By the time you're 10 years old, God has designed you to live life with help from parents, from adults, from teachers, from people around you in church who know you and love you and care for you. You're not supposed to have it all figured out. So I hope that's good news for you. But God does want to grow you. (laughs) He wants to teach you. He wants to train you. And the way he does it is he uses the adults in your life. Because he loves you, God has put adults in your life to help you, teach you, train you, and grow you. And so your posture towards them If the parents posture toward each other has to be one of like benediction, blessing speech, your posture towards the adults in your life for your own good has to be of honor and reception and listening and understanding. That's why, um, you know, in the first half of the book of Proverbs, it says, my son, my child, pay attention to my words like a hundred times. And it's because God's trying to tell you something. There's a season in life where you're supposed to listen, where you're supposed to learn, where you're supposed to receive, you're supposed to pay attention, and where, it, it's, where you're not supposed to have it all figured out. And that's the season of childhood. And so here's your calling. This is uh, what we read in Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment. And look, it has a promise so that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. If you listen, if you posture yourself as as an open ear towards the parents that God has put in your life to care for you, you'll find blessing. You'll tend towards wisdom. You'll grow in righteousness. Now, the opposite of honor and obeying, it's despising, scoffing, and cursing. This is what the book of Proverbs says. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer doesn't listen to rebuke. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. Listen to your father who gave you life, and do not despise your mother when she is old. If one curses his father or mother, listen to this, his lamp will be put out in other darkness. Now, I know as children, it can be so easy to think your parents have no clue about anything. I mean, they're so old. How could they possibly know what's good, right? But that attitude, that posture towards your parents, it'll run you into the ground. To despise your parents 
to scoff at them. It means to kind of treat them as worthless. It's like, it's like your heart is rolling its eyes at your parents. It says, I already know everything I need to know. Just to give you an example of what this means, uh, I, I had a kid when I was doing Young Life once where I, I went and met with him because he wanted to run away from home. And so we're sitting and we're um, eating pizza together. And so he's basically talking about how he's going to run away from home. And his parents don't understand him. His parents don't know anything. And his life at home wasn't perfect. And I could see kind of he had a point in some places. But then I asked him, well, dude, what are you going to do? And he's like, I don't know, man. I'm just going to finish high school and then I'll probably go to NC State or something. And I said, how are you going to get to college? Who's going to drive you? Who's going to pay for it? And he said, well, my parents will. And I said, are you serious? You can't just bite the hand that feeds you and say, I don't want your love. I don't want your instruction. I don't want to live under your rules. But then give me what I want. You can't have it both ways. And so I just said, dude, do you know what you're doing? Dude, you're a fool. You're a fool. Because you're biting the hand that feeds you. You're burning a bridge to the people who God has put in your life to care about you. And no, they're not perfect. But you're not either. And God is, and he's put them in your life. So listen to him. You only got another year. (laughs) And you can go and move to college. So... This, it, it doesn't mean honoring your parents, listening to them. It doesn't mean that you just imitate their style in everything they do. There's some things that don't need to be imitated. Like, for instance, my dad had this uh, pair of pants in the 80s. He called them his coming and going pants. So they were like, uh, there's corduroy pants that are like red, blue, yellow, and red. Or red, red, blue, yellow, and green. So they were these extraordinary pants. It was like Joseph's many-colored coat. Now, that's a thing that I've tried to imitate, but I can't really pull off because it just doesn't work anymore. So some things do go out of style. There's some things in your parents that just aren't worth keeping that tradition going. But what you need to do is you need to imitate their faith. This is what it says in Hebrews 13. Remember your leaders. Remember the people God has put put over you. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life. And listen to this. Imitate their faith. If there's anything good, if there's anything true in the parents that God has given you, look for it, praise God for it, imitate it. Now, parents and adults, leaders and teachers, this means that we have a solemn responsibility to give our children something worth imitating. Our charge is it's in Proverbs 22.6, to train up a child in the way they should go so that even when they're old, they do not depart from it. And the word train here, it describes kind of a, a continual practice. The word could also be translated dedicate. So dedicate or be dedicating your child to the path of wisdom. And the Hebrew word here, it, it's related to this old Arabic verb, this is the kind of stuff you read when you, you learn when you read commentaries, but it, it's fascinating. It was a word uh, that was used to, to describe the way uh, parents would take like a mixture of sweet fruit and dates and rub it on the palates of their babies, of newborn babies, to teach the children to, to suckle and to get milk. 
the milk that they need to sustain their life. So it's, it's to train a child means to give them a taste for the life-giving things of God. It's to train their tastes. It's to train their heart. It's to show them how to love. It doesn't just mean to pour information into their heads. Like when we take the kids in the, in the nursery and the K through 5 and they're doing the catechism, the fact that they know that God made them and God also made all things, that's not just a black and white fact that we want them to know, but it's a truth about God that we want to lead them into worship of God. So you go out and you see the sun and you see the beach and you see the forest and you see the light refract through the leaves of the tree and you go, God made everything. Isn't that wonderful? Can you believe that? God made you. He made every single thing about you. Isn't he lovely? Isn't the world he made good and beautiful and true? Let's worship him. That's what it means to train your child up in the way they should go. It means that you worship God out loud for them so they can see you. So they know what it looks like. Because your kids will learn what you love. If you love and worship God, they're going to they're get that. But whatever you love and worship, they will get that also. If you love and worship comfort, if you love and worship being right, if you love and worship success, if you love and worship pleasure and toys, your children will notice it. And they may even imitate it. Because God has, has, has put them in your life to receive things from you. So what we have to do, parents, is we have this solemn responsibility to model the fear and the worship and the honor of the Lord for the kids that God has put in our lives. And also that does mean not just showing them what's good, but also kind of training them away from what's bad. That's why it, it talks about instructing the heart of a child. Because foolishness, according to Proverbs, is bound up in the heart of the child, but discipline, the rod of discipline, removes it from them. So there is a place for godly instruction and discipline in the life of a child. It's not just pointing to what's good, it's also turning them away from what's bad. But, parents, this is important. There is such a thing as the kind of discipline that wears a child out, that's wearisome to a child, that's actually destructive rather than constructive. And that's why it says in Ephesians 6 that you don't want to provoke your children to anger. You don't want to discourage your children. You want to bring them up in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. So there's a balance there. This is what's kind of imagined in, in Deuteronomy 5. God is calling the Israelites uh, into the promised land, and he's gathering them together. It's this kind of family of families, this collection of people. And this is what he says. He says, these words that I command you today... Elders, parents of Israel, they shall be on your heart. And being on your heart, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, you'll bind them as a sign on your hand. They'll be frontlets before your eyes. You'll write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. He's saying, parents, your, your kids should not just live in a gospel-centered house. It should be a gospel-saturated house. They should not be able to miss the truths and the beauty of God. Everywhere they turn, they should be reminded of the God who loves them and redeemed them and knows them and is calling them to live in response to him. So our life is on display. And the question is, what are we displaying? And this is, for a lot of us, this is going to require humility. It's going to require repentance. 
it's going to require some honesty. It's going to require acknowledging our weakness and the fact that we don't do this perfectly. None of us. If we're honest, we know that all of our families and all of our best intentions have been touched by the stain of sin. We know that life in this world, we talked about it in the affirmation of faith, it's touched by the curse of human sinfulness ever since the time of Adam and Eve. So human relationships are messy. Human relationships are broken. Families are full of pain. Nobody has a perfect family. So how do you keep from losing hope? How do you acknowledge the brokenness of this life while still striving to live in the fear of the Lord? How do we honor our families, right? How do we honor our parents, especially you who are growing up and you're you're moving out of the house, right? Or maybe you just got married. How do you honor your parents without becoming kind of unhealthily enmeshed in your parents' lives? Parents, how do you love your kids and make them a priority without needing them to be perfect and living all your hopes and dreams through your kids? How do you do that? How do you strike the balance? What hope is there for our hearts, which just seem to make the wrong choice at every turn? Because if we're honest, most of the way we operate in our families is not characterized by wisdom. A lot of times it is foolishness. So how do you not lose hope? The answer is, is that we have to learn to live in the light of the myth of the perfect family. Now, I said that, that none of us has a perfect family, and that's kind of half true. The kind of blessedness that Proverbs describes is, is pretty rare in Scripture, certainly rare in the Old Testament, and it's certainly rare in, in most of our own experiences in our families. Uh, sometimes it can kind of look like a family in a commercial for allergy medicine, you know, where they're, they're running through like a field of wild, wildflowers, and you've got two beautiful kids. You've got parents who, you know, their kids are 14, but the parents look like they're 25, but they're really 45. You know, and there's the golden retriever again, and he's like frolicking with everyone. And it seems too good to be true. It seems fake, right? And so you can just get angry. You can get cynical, and you can say, that, that, that's never going to be true of me. That's never going to be true of my family. That kind of blessing, that kind of beauty, that's just a myth. And you're right. The perfect family is a myth. But hear me out. This is really important. Just because it's a myth does not mean it's not true. C.S. Lewis says something pretty wonderful in one of his essays. He says that Jesus Christ, the gospel, is myth become fact. That in Christ, when you come to him, all of the dreams that you dream as a little child, all of the perfect standards that you hold your imperfect existence up to, They're all real. They're all true. When you read the gospel, you see something absolutely breathtaking, absolutely incredible. And I don't want you to miss it. There is such a thing as a perfect father who teaches his children perfectly in such a way that they never stray, but that they'll stay on the path and that no one will ever take him, take this children out of the father's hand. There is a perfect son who listens to the instruction of the Father, who grows up in wisdom and is perfectly obedient. And he doesn't receive discipline for his own sin. He actually receives discipline for the sins of all his foolish brothers and sisters. 
And he takes it all on himself. There is such a thing as the perfect spouse who cries out to his church, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine and there's nothing I there's nothing that can stop me from coming for her from presenting her perfect to me from washing her with the word and making her clean and spotless there's such a thing as a perfectly devoted husband there is such a thing as a perfect family and it's available to all those who come to Christ in faith so that us as we seek to live in the midst of our broken and hurting, and imperfect families, we can see Christ. We can see our true Heavenly Father. And we can begin to walk in and experience the kind of blessing that we are created for. And we get a taste of it in this life, and then in the next life. In the book of Revelation, it says that we will be with God, we'll be in his household, we'll be all together, and he, the perfect Father, will wipe every tear from the eyes of his people. And the dwelling of God shall be with man. And they'll live together. That's a beautiful thing. And so now as we come uh, to the Lord's table, I want to remind you that this is a family meal. And that Christ, our elder brother, Christ, the husband of the church, is he's calling us to this table to sit and eat with him, to drink with him, to participate in his life-giving death. On the night that he was betrayed, he sat with his disciples. And he said, I've no longer called you servants. I call you my friends. Because I lay down my life for you. And this is my body. Broken for you. And then he took the cup of wine. And he said, this is my blood. That is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you eat and drink this, do this for remembrance of me. So I want to invite you to come up. Um, if you are a child of God, if you've received Christ into your heart, if you've trusted in him and you're leaning on him to make you perfect, then you're welcome to come and join us. And if not, you can just sit and, and think about what it might look like to receive God as your father, to receive Christ as your husband. And uh, as the... Um, the deacons come down. They'll dismiss us. We'll go down the center aisle. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us perfectly, for being a perfect father, for instructing us in the way that we should go, for putting obedience in our hearts. We thank you, Lord Christ for being our good elder brother, for taking the punishment that we deserved, and for offering forgiveness freely to all those who will come to you. Lord, we ask that you would allow us to feed on you in our hearts by faith as we eat and drink together in this family meal. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.